You're listening to Monocle on Saturday, first broadcast on the 9th of April 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and the warmest of welcomes to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up today we look at the papers and have an assessment of what's been happening in Ukraine over the last few days. To help me, the Russia expert Stephen Deal. Good morning Stephen. Good morning what Emma, good spotted? morning everyone. Um, well of course, sadly just as we think the news is getting better, we have the terrible tragedy of missiles striking a station where thousands of people are trying to evacuate in Kramatorsk. So that is very much the dominant story of the morning. Thank you very much indeed Stephen. We'll also be hearing from our man in the Balkans, Guy Delors. And Andrew Muller will fill us in on the news we may have missed this week. We learned this week that we, for one whimsical news monologue, are yet to tire of those stories in which some or other politician gets pulled up by some or other musician over the unauthorised and unappreciated use of their music. So a packed half hour ahead, live on Monocle 24. Before we begin, a quick look at the news. Ukraine has called for more weapons and harsher sanctions after blaming Russia for a missile attack that killed at least 52 people at a train station. Slovakia has sent its entire S-300 surface-to-air missile system to Ukraine to help bolster the country's air defences from Russian attack. It's the first known case of a country sending an entire air defence system to Ukraine since Russia invaded in February. And the Austrian Chancellor Karl Nehammer is in the Ukrainian capital Kiev today to meet President President Volodymyr Zelensky, Austria, which has remained neutral, has been providing humanitarian aid as well as helmets and body armour for civilians rather than weapons. That's a look at the papers. Um, let's get straight on with what we've spotted on this morning. Good morning, Stephen. Good to see you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, still, of course, deeply distressed about the war in Ukraine. Um, and as I, I mentioned at the top, you know, we think we hear about the Russians have pulled out of the whole of the north of Ukraine now and you think, well, maybe things are getting better. We know they're, they're massing for an assault in the east, but um, that was a little bit of better news this week. I won't call it good news. But then we have this terrible tragedy yesterday of missiles striking the station at Kramatorsk, Kramatorsk being very much a point where people were gathering from the east of Ukraine to be evacuated. And it's thought there were over a 1,000 people in the station when uh, at least two missiles hit. Because there had been this instruction, hadn't they? The, the, affel- the offensive, the assault is on the way from Russia. The focus is going to be on the east and the south. Therefore, the advice was to get out while you could. Yes, and apparently most Ukrainians are showing just how stubborn their countrymen have been uh, in, this, in this whole uh, war because most of them are actually staying put. But nevertheless, hundreds, if not thousands, have decided to, to join the flow westwards, possibly to find places of refuge in western Ukraine, which has been relatively unscathed so far, or possibly to leave the country. Um, but And just as uh, over a thousand of them were there, these two missiles came in. Um, and there's one really extraordinary thing about uh, the missile, well, apart from the fact that the ghastly n- nature of the missile attack, um, is that on one of the missiles, which didn't inspl- explode completely, part of the casing was left and it has a message, and I first heard it in English, and it said, for the children. And I thought, my God, how ghastly can you get? Is this, a, is this meant to be some sort of sick joke of a present for the children? When you look at it in Russian, it, it translates as for the children, but it's, it's zadityeh, which means that's for the children. 
So it's supposed to be some kind of revenge attack for children being killed somewhere, so no one knows. And, of course, the Russians, and I have uh, in front of me um, the Russian newspaper Komsomolskaya uh, Pravda, and, of course, they make a big thing. It's quite a long report, and they call it Bucha too. Now, let's remember, without repeating too much Russian disinformation and lies, that the Russians maintain that it was the Ukrainians who killed all the people in the town of Bucha near Kiev, when we know there is all the evidence that shows this was the Russians who did it. But, of course, this is part of Russian disinformation. Um, and so they're calling this Bucha too, and they're saying it was a Ukrainian missile. And they have woven this story about that, that there were um, some Ukrainian children killed, and, and so that's what this me- message means. Um, it is it is bizarre, Um but, uh, as I say, I, I don't really want to give too much credit to, <laughs> to the Russian papers because there is no real news in Russia now. This is one of, the, one of the, the spin-off tragedies, you might say, of this war, is that at a time when freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of the media was being clamped down on in the last year in Russia, in the last month and a half since the start of the war, we've seen the screws really tightened and any organisation that could give anything other than the official view is now closed down or maybe broadcasts or publishes from abroad. If Russians and younger ones, tend who are a bit more tech-savvy, they have a VPN and so they can still pick it up. But otherwise, most Russians are now getting this uh, appalling l- line, which is a bunch of lies. And as a result, how much um, is the tide turning against Ukraine in terms of Russian public opinion? It's very difficult to judge that. There has been one opinion poll, um, but, of course, it's very difficult to conduct an opinion poll in Russia now because people are frightened by their government. Um, if someone rings them up doing an opinion poll and it says, oh, I'm from the the Levada, for example, it's a, which is a very well-known um, uh, um, opinion poll organisation, they'll think, well, if I tell you... Uh, I, I don't know how far it's going to go. Are you then going to pass this on to the government uh, with my number and my name, and, and will I be in trouble as a result? Um, uh, I was talking to some Russians uh, in Moscow earlier in the week, and they were saying that um, uh, a, a friend of theirs, their son, who's uh, studying at um, higher education college in Moscow, um, who's been known for going to demonstrations with Navalny in years gone by and has protested about the war has now had basically a final warning. You know, you, you do make one more protest and you're out, not only of here, but that will be the end of your higher education anywhere in Russia. Um, so there is pressure being put on, and that, of course, does have an effect on people. I mean, it's, you know, these are Russians' lives, and however much they might object to the war, they're, they're, they're worried about the repercussions. So you're getting this... I was going to call it a silent majority. I don't. I don't know. I can't say if it's a majority either. But but there is a significant number of Russians who are against the war, uh, who have possibly relatives in Ukraine, but they are frightened to speak out because they think, well, what will that do to me? I mean, and that what you have just said is a suggestion of going back to the Stasi in Germany, going back to the the, the communist era of of, of of the USSR. That what you described there is, if you can be a student and you are caught out for expressing your own opinion in public once or twice, that suggests that there is a system in place which is absolutely widespread within Russia. Yes, it is widespread. That That is, this has been, um, 
perhaps in a way it was almost something that helped inspire Putin to do what he's done and, and um, start the war on Ukraine because he feels that he has a real grip on his own population. He created five or six years ago a new military organization called the National Guard in Russian Rosgvardia and that is um, estimates about probably about 340,000 strong uh, and that's on top of the army, the, the KGB, the ordinary police force. Um, and they are they are really there for internal security. And it's interesting, some troops, they have tried to send some of them when they've been, because of the casualties they've suffered in Ukraine, they've tried to send some of them into Ukraine. And actually, they've had objections. This is news that's come out that they've some of them have said this is what wasn't what we signed up for. We signed up for internal security in Russia. And they're playing on the, 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 the illegal point. And it's quite interesting that sometimes in Russia you can still have a legal point, even though the courts tend to do what the government wants. But the legal point being that because Putin insists this is not a war, and indeed it is a crime to call it a war, it is a special military operation, they say we cannot be sent there under emergency regulations because it's not a war. Um, which is an interesting twist for the security services, um, um, playing Putin almost at his own game. Um, but there is this security apparatus in the country which does have a grip on people, as you say, like the Stasi in East Germany, like, like the, the KGB or the NKVD before that in the Soviet Union. Um, and... Uh, it, 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 of course, does have an effect. Um, looking at some of the papers today, I mean, you, you, you mentioned Pravda, and I've just stumbled across Komsomolska Pravda. Komsomolska. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at Pravda, the, 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 the website which talks about has Russia become a pariah for the whole world? Russia will not become a rogue state because of Ukraine because at least two-thirds of the world's population does not condemn Russia's actions. Uh, it says the UK's economist has pitifully written that. I do like the tone, but it's it's awful. Russia has not become a pariah and will crush Ukraine. Um, billions of people living on Earth are loyal to Russia. Countries such as China and India ruin the whole picture that the West would like to see. Um, whatever you think of the, the way that it is written, it's got a point, hasn't it, that when you have the likes in China and India still not openly condemning what is happening in Russia, there is no end to this, surely. It's it's that's it's cleverly written. I'll give, I'll give them that, but it's not entirely true, right. um, as, as is often the case with disinformation. Um, Russia likes to pretend that China is, is in fact on Russia's side. China's not on anyone's side. China's sitting on the fence watching very carefully what goes on. Um, and re let's remember that um, China is far more important to Russia than Russia is to China, uh, as far as as far as China's concerned. Yet they, they play along and Xi, uh, Xi Jinping plays this game that, you know, oh, Putin's my best friend. But uh, he knows that's not true. And he knows that he would drop him like a hot potato if, um, if he had to. Um, Bear in mind, you know, the markets that China has around the world um, for everything, <laughs> going, to, going to any shop anywhere. And um, uh, we, I was discussing this with some friends recently. I said, you know, try and find something that, that was made in China. It'll take you about 30 seconds. And they said, no, no, try and find something that wasn't made in China. Um, whereas if you do the same with Russian, Russia, before the, uh, even before the uh, invasion, you wouldn't find Russian goods. So China has these markets. And, they, you know, and actually China has a very good market in Ukraine too. So they don't want to queer their pitch with, with the rest of the world. So they are actually sitting on the fence. They may not be criticising Russia in the way that uh, the Western world is, but they're not, I wouldn't say that, that if you look at it closely, they are not supporting Russia. India is a bit different. India 
has had very close relations with Russia for a long time, and particularly after independence, and the Russians saw that Russia saw that as a great way, way of throwing off colonialism, which is rather ironic given that Russia is now behaving like a colonial power in Ukraine. But India has a, has a closer relationship, undoubtedly. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll give them that one. But um, what we you know we've seen at the United Nations this week, Russia has been thrown off the the Human Rights Council. Um, so that rather puts to the lie the idea that two-thirds of the world's population um, are in, in support of Russia. That's just not true. Um, tell us what other um, papers are saying about what's happening in Ukraine. Um, the, the New York Times, New York Times has a very interesting, actually two very interesting articles on their front page. And as, as happens with the New York Times, they start on the front page and then go inside and suddenly realise it's a big article. Um, one is called Germany is Enabling Putin's War. Um, and uh, this is it's by Paul Krugman, who is always worth reading. Um, and he, he's pointing out that um, Germany has been far too lax uh, about, um, particularly about giving up Russian oil and gas. Um, and he argues very strongly that actually the, the effect on Germany, it would, it would lead temporarily to a 2% fall in um, uh, GDP, uh, gross domestic product. But in the long run, Germany would get round this very easily and much easier than Russia would. And, and this is, it's a drum that um, President Zelensky in, in Ukraine has been banging this week saying, you know, stop the Russian oil and gas because that is giving Russia a billion, up to a billion dollars a day um, if, because the West is still buying their oil and gas. And if they say, well, well I don't, what, what worries me, or it's you know, why don't they just say, we're not going to pay? Because Russia then has a problem. They are still, once you're producing the oil and gas, it's got to go somewhere. You can't, it's not like a tap. You can't just suddenly turn it off. And so if you're not then putting it into the pipelines and sending it to, in this case, the West, uh, you've got to have gas and oil storage facilities. And they have some, of course, but they don't have enough. So I think the West should actually say, actually, we're not going to pay and then see what Russia does, because they'll find it impossible simply to switch off the gas. So that, that's, an, that's an interesting one. Um, I mentioned two articles in the New York Times. The other one, um, uh, under the headline, Body Bags Bring Home Conflicts Toll for Russians. Um, Russia, of course, has been playing down the idea that, that yeah, they say they've had less than fewer than 2,000 casualties, fewer than 2,000 deaths amongst their troops, which we know to be nonsense. Um, I, 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 although I sympathise with the Ukrainians, I have to be a little bit sceptical of some of their claims for, for um, uh, ca Russian casualties. But I think it, it is generally agreed, um, NATO figures and so on, that it's, it is at least... Uh, two weeks ago they were saying it was 15,000, so it's probably up around 17,000, 20,000 perhaps. Now, that's in six weeks fighting in Ukraine. In the, over nine years, nearly 10 years, that Russia was in Afghanistan from 1979 to 1989. They lost 13,500 soldiers dead, um, 50,000 or so casualties but they were wounded. But uh, they, I think there is no doubt at all now they have lost more in this war than they did in Afghanistan. And those body bags going back, in fact, there were zinc coffins in, in Af from Afghanistan that were being sent back. That had a real effect uh, on with other changes that were happening in the Soviet Union, on the breakup of the Soviet Union. Mm. People were saying, we were lied to about this. What else have been lied about? Now, here, they're not sending many bodies back, but people are going to be finding out, you know, my son, brother, husband is, is not coming back because he's dead. If, however, you put the narrative alongside it that they are liberating... Ukraine from the from the Nazis and that this is this is a just war, then actually the narrative can quite gruesomely be twisted in, in into a pro Kremlin uh, return of a fallen hero. 
It can, but if it's not, if the body's not being returned, that's again, you know, they found out because they're very poor at the at the um, the, the public relations around this. Um, you know, people who have suspicious uh, suspicions that their that their loved one has died have gone to the local military commissariat and saying, you know, what's going on. And they've been told, we know nothing, we know nothing. They're, they're very bad. The army, the Russian army, is very bad at actually telling people uh, the truth about anything or, or simply being, oh, he's dead, now, you know, next, uh, I have nothing more to say to you. That, that, that is, is a, an attitude that comes across very much so. Now, that, of course, sets people against the official line. Um, so I would say that the more, the more deaths there are, and either body bags coming back or just people finding out that their loved ones have been killed, the less likelihood that they're going to say, well, he died in a good cause, the more they're going to say, why the hell are we in there? Just going back to the article in the New York Times that you mentioned, the opinion piece about how Germany became Putin's mm. enabler. I mean, it's absolutely vicious about <laughs> Olaf Scholz. And, and it's incredible. And, and, and the idea that German, I'm quoting here, German industrialists have refused to accept economist estimates. They have insisted that a gas embargo would be a catastrophe and that Olaf Scholz has taken the side of the scaremongers and has also gone one step further and said there's a contrast between Germany's current reluctance to make moderate sacrifices and the immense sacrifices Germany demanded of other countries during the European debt crisis a decade ago. It's an incredible... I mean, this week, the, the, the Greeks paid their debt off. Just this week. So we're looking back at, you know, a, a decade's worth of incredible austerity. The, and they were very quick to push out, you know, warnings were the Germans to Greece saying, you know, you are the, the, you know, the bad debtor of Europe. And yet this article is saying everybody's been warning Germany about this reliance on Russian gas. Why haven't you done something about it? Yeah, no, it is. That, that, is, um, that really is the, the, the crux of the, of the article. I, I just hope that it gets widely read um, and, and take a note and, and people actually start asking the question. We, you know, we have seen, to, to, to perhaps say a word in Germany's defence, you know, we have seen small changes, uh, significant changes. You know, they did right at the start say, right, we are not going to put Nord Stream 2, the second gas pipeline, into operation. Um, it wasn't, you know, that, that didn't affect the gas flow because it already wasn't working. But um, that, that was a big blow for Russia in that they'd expected that to come in. Um, Germany, of course, then broke with its post-Second World War tradition of, of being doing very little militarily for good reason um, because people don't want to see German boots on their soil. But they did send, you know, they've sent military equipment to, uh, to Ukraine and they have um, uh, said there's an extra 100 million euros, I believe it is, um, per annum is going to be devoted to the German, German military. So they have stepped up on those, which which you know should be noted. But yes, this this comparison with the the um, the, the economic crisis of um, what nearly fifteen years ago now um, is 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 very interesting. And as I say, Paul, Paul Krugman in the New York Times is always worth reading because he brings these points out. Um, you're listening to Monocle on Saturday. I'm joined in the studio by Stephen Diel, the Russia expert and uh, general uh, sort of can can do everything, can approach everything. Voice here on Monocle Twenty Four in terms of. Commentary. Let's have another one. Let's add to the mix Guy Delorney, uh, our man in the Balkans, another wide ranging of expertise. Good morning, Guy. How are you? I'm very well, thank you very much, Emma. I hope that means, you know, that's, that's a compliment rather than sort of spreading myself too thinly. Oh, expertise abounds in your department, Guy. <laughs> um, tell us what's happening. Where, where are you and what's happening where you are? 
Well, I'm in Ljubljana at the moment. I, the, the interesting thing is we've got elections going on here. Uh, in, in not right now, not this weekend, uh, but at the end of the month on the 24th. And you know, it's been a bit of a month for elections, hasn't it? What with Serbia, then Hungary, and uh, now, of course, France as well. So everybody's going to the polls this month, it seems. Uh, and uh, I didn't put this in my list of topics to you, but if, since you asked about, you know, what's going on here, this is what's going on here. And the, the fun and games that we always have in Slovenia when it comes to election time is who is going to be the fresh face who is going to try and take on Janusz Janša and his SDS party. And this is a pattern that just repeats and repeats and repeats over and over and over, that the SDS and Janusz Janša have been a constant since the early 1990s. He's currently prime minister. Sometimes he's in jail, having been convicted for corruption, which was then overturned, I hastily add. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's, he's always there. And then there's always somebody else who comes along. They often get in, become prime minister. Then the, the voters get rather fed up with them. And this has happened to, you know, last time around it was uh, Marianne Sharetz, who was a comedian. Um, and they didn't find him particularly amusing once he got into office and his government collapsed. Mr. Jancic came in. Uh, before that, it was Miro Serra, who was one of the people who wrote Slovenia's constitution, who everybody thought was going to be, uh, you know, a sensible and steady option. They found him quite boring once he was in and uh, his party collapsed afterwards. This time round, we've got a man called Robert Golob, who has a, a, a new party called the Freedom Movement, which is uh, supposedly green left. But um, we're not really quite sure what Mr. Golob actually is. And the appeal of him at the moment seems to be that he is this proverbial fresh face um, and he's just polling slightly ahead of Mr Janša and the SDS at the moment so he would get first crack at forming a government if it stays that way on the 24th of April. What is the likelihood of Mr Janša's retaining power and letting these new uh, these new green shoots well just crushing them? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, it's a, look, at the moment, the, the polls are like this. Mr. Janscher and his SDS are polling about 18%, Mr. Golob about 20%. It's very, very tight. And the way that it works in Slovenia is whichever party gets the largest proportion of the vote gets the first chance to form a government. And then if they say that they can get a coalition together, then the president, Borut Pahor, will award the leader of the, the, the that party the mandate to form the government. And then, you know, they, they then go ahead and do that. And last time round, we saw virtually all the parties say that they would refuse to work with Mr Jansha and the SDS. And so you had this rather unwieldy coalition, a coalition led by Marianne Charette, the, the comedian that I mentioned. And I tried to get him to tell me a joke once, and that didn't end well. Um, but <laughs> I uh, wonder why. <laughs> Can you remember, you remember what the joke was, Guy? Well, it wasn't... I, I, wanted, I wanted any joke from him. Uh, this is before the elections. And, uh, you know, I, I went along. And obviously, when you're trying to do these stories for an international audience, Slovenia, two million people, it's not huge. And so the idea of a, of a comedian running for high office is, is a hook. And he wanted to move on from comedy, I think it's fair to say. Uh, but I, I thought, hey, you know, you were a satirist. Well, what would you have said in your satire days about this situation that the best hope of uh, defeating Janusz Janscher at the, at the polls would be a, a comedian, a former comedian being elected? And he just straight battered everything. He, he did not see the funny side. Indeed. Right. What else is happening in the world that you, that you want to tell the Monocle listeners about? Well, I think the big thing that we're looking at really is what's going on with Serbia and Russia and the European Union. So this is coming back into Stephen's field of expertise here, to be honest with you. But um, it is a big question because, as I mentioned, we had these elections in Serbia last weekend. And when I say elections, I mean presidential, parliamentary and also some municipal elections, including municipal elections in the capital, Belgrade. 
And, you know, the question there was really, how big will the victory of President Alexander Vucic and his progressive party be? And the answer was, in the case of the presidential election, very big indeed. Mr Vucic is still very much the president. Uh, In the case of the parliamentary elections, well, you know, the progressive party were clearly the largest party and will form a government. That's clear. Not as crushing a victory as we've seen in the past, uh, but the opposition still not really a compelling proposition uh, for the Serbian voters, it seems. In Belgrade, very close indeed uh, in terms of whether the progressives will be able to keep control of uh, of the of the municipality of Belgrade and the mayor's office, importantly, and we're going to have reruns, um, which very exciting in some of the polling stations, uh, because there, there were irregularities reported. The uh, the electoral commission agrees that there were irregularities. We're going to have reruns of some of those elections, so we won't know what's going to be happening in Belgrade for another week or so. So that's all very exciting. But coming back to Russia, people will have noticed that Serbia hasn't joined the EU sanctions against Russia. Uh, It has consistently refused to do this, didn't do it in 2014, hasn't done it now, um, says it's not in the best interests of Serbia. Russia is a long-time friend. Serbia's got to look after itself. It has, on the other hand, joined the the UN resolutions condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And just the other day, um, Russia's uh, suspending Russia's membership uh, from the Human Rights Council of the UN. So it's done that. Uh, And really the question I'm asking myself on a daily basis is, at what point is Brussels going to start to put Alexander Vucic under heavy manners? Because he's won this election with a big margin. He's very secure in his position. When are they actually going to say to him, right now, Alexander, you really need to choose which side you're on? It's an interesting story that that, that Guy has been... Um, these, are, these are issues that have been raised regularly with the likes of Hungary. We saw Viktor Orban last week um, criticising Volodymyr Zelensky. We have, in the last couple of days, uh, Vladimir, uh, uh, sorry, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, saying that the, uh, the Polish prime minister is an anti-Semite. And this is, Stephen, a deeply dividing issue, isn't it? it the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and the cracks have appeared incredibly quickly and incredibly deeply, haven't they? Whereas, you know, if we cast our minds back about a month ago, the European Union was was acting as one, wasn't it? Yeah, we, we were amazed then that um, the European Union was, as you say, acting as one. And we thought, great, you know, this is one of another of Putin's errors was that he had miscalculated the way um, the West and particularly the European Union would, would react. But this must be giving him a crumb of comfort at least to see, ah, there are divisions now. Um, now, Serbia, as Guy mentioned, I mean, Serbia is always seen as, a, you know, as, as an old friend of, um, uh, of Russia. I have a Serbian friend who debates that hotly and doesn't think yes. that, that, that Russia should be seen as a friend. But I always think, well, go if you, if you read Anna Karenina, Tolstoy's, I think his greatest novel, even better than War and Peace, um, but if you look at that and, and towards the end of it, um, that the troops are going off to fight to defend the Serbs. So there are strong Slav ties that go back a long way, but it doesn't mean to say they're necessarily uh, the best of friends now, even though uh, President Vucic seemed to think they are. Go in, in that neck of the woods, what is the general feeling? Because obviously the re-election of the likes of Vucic and Orban suggests that local people at least are happy with, with their yeah. lot. But is there an issue that this is a domestic priority taken over international issues or is there something a bit more sinister at play here? 
Well, I studied history at university, and specifically American history, so that's not very, you know, this area. <laughs> but there's, there was a lesson which you can draw from it. My tutor at the time, David Murdoch, said to me, listen, American elections are never won on foreign policy. And I think that's something which holds true for an awful lot of elections. And, and when you look at what's happened in Serbia, people have voted um, for the person they think has got the best organisation in the country, and he has. And Aleksandr Vucic and the Progressive Party have been really the only game in town for the past decade in terms of uh, an organised political and governing uh, you know, credible unit in Serbia, the opposition had been atomized. This time they got themselves together in a broad coalition called United Serbia. But it was such a broad coalition that the only thing that any of them had in common was they wanted to get rid of Mr. Vucic and the progressives. They hadn't, as you know, numerous analysts said to me, really come up with a compelling set of policies or costed them out. And when people look at what has happened in Serbia over the past decade, that there has been economic progress, there has been progress towards membership of the European Union. If you, the Belgian Belgrade of 2022 is noticeably more developed than the Belgrade of 2012, which was when I first moved to Belgrade. You know, people might not like Mr. Vucic's style, which has been described as veering towards autocratic. They might not like what he did in the 1990s when he was an information minister under Slobodan Milosevic. But when they see what's happened over the past decade, they can see what has been achieved on Mr. Vucic's watch. And, you know, they say he claims credit for things he shouldn't claim credit for. Well, you know, you get a lot of that when there's developments in countries. Governments and heads of state will claim credit for the developments which occur on their watch. And that's what's really pushed the Serbian people to vote for him in such huge numbers. I mean, when you look at the numbers, he got nearly 60 percent in the presidential election, his nearest challenger didn't even make 20%. And there's only so much, you know, um, manipulation of voters, encouragement of voters, manipulation of the media that you can do. Uh, that can't explain that level of victory for Mr Vucic. Guy Deloney, thank you so much, as ever, for joining us on Monocle 24. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday with me, Emma Nelson. Joining me in the studio is uh, Stephen Deal, Russia expert uh, and Monocle regular voice. Uh, Stephen, just let's look at one big election that's happening in Europe this weekend. Uh, we're looking at the French elections. And you know, we've we've seen two huge elections in in uh, in the European Union, in, in Europe in the last couple of weeks, in, uh, in Serbia and also in Hungary, where people have been unafraid to go for the far right. Now, when we're looking at what's happening in, in France, with Marine Le Pen having her third and arguably perhaps final shot at the presidency, and the worrying numbers that she is managing to win, is this to do with Russia? Is this to do with the far right? What is it that's happening here? Actually, the, the, I'll play the Russia card, as it were, first, and mm. say that one thing that uh, Marine Le Pen has done quite cleverly um, since since she lost the last election five years ago, is she has actually distanced herself rather from Russia. She has come out and criticised the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, whereas we know in the past it, it all came to light and she had to um, rather reluctantly admit it, but she had actually received funding from the Kremlin. Um, uh, and so that... But that was before the 2017 election. Um, now she is playing this game of... of, of I say playing a game, but she's she is prepared to criticise Russia, 
and she is is softening her attitude. I'm just I'm trying to find the article. I was just reading before we came on air. Sorry about it was that. A very good article. Where was it? In? It was a very good article um, about about Le Pen um, uh, and saying that she she really has changed her approach and she's softened it. And um, I mean, there are twelve candidates. It's very interesting. There are twelve candidates in this election, but only people are really only talking about two candidates. But there's an even further right candidate who, and she seems to be playing off that and saying, look, you know, I'm more centrist now. Um, Le Monde uh, had, ran a poll two days ago in which um, President Macron came out with about 26.2, I think it was, percent uh, of the vote and uh, Le Pen 22 percent. So that uh, President Macron must be a little bit worried. Of course, his Russia card is that um, he, in the build-up, as it turns out, what was the build-up to the invasion of Ukraine, um, he made, um, I think it was three trips to Moscow to speak one-on-one -on -one with Putin at the end of a very long table, which caused lots of memes on social media. Um, and he sort of came back sort of trying to be optimistic and saying, you know, I think, you know, we can we can find our way out of this and not have a war. And then, of course, ended up with egg on his face because it's exactly what happened. So um, he has been criticised, in fact, for concentrating too much on foreign affairs on as, as guy said and i've always believed this as well i don't think it's just american politics um no government i don't think has ever really won its its its, its seats on foreign affairs it's to people worried about you know their own health and, and economy and, and jobs and so on mm. um and he has been criticized for concentrating too much of that and not enough on on what's going on in france and that it appears to be, if not pushing Le Pen ahead of him at the moment, but certainly leading her to, to catch up because she is seen as the, uh, you know, I'm for France. Stephen Dale, thank you so much for that. Let's uh, finally turn to our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, with his take on the week's weird and wonderful news stories. Here is what we learned. We learned this week that we, for one whimsical news monologue, are yet to tire of those stories in which some or other politician gets pulled up by some or other musician over the unauthorised and unappreciated use of their music. Not only are these always fun in and of themselves, they save us a lot of buggering about trying to find suitable audio accompaniment for these bits. So let's hear it for Eddie Grant, who, we learned, is an outsider bet to beat a host of other pursuers to become the first to compel increasingly former US President Donald Trump to testify under oath. Order! Order! We learned that Grant is after 300,000 US dollars from Trump by way of recompense for the appearance of Grant's 1983 hit Electric Avenue in a 2020 election ad. Trump has thus far been disinclined to settle. Absent a resolution, we learned he could be deposed to answer for himself by June. That's the month, not the judge, whose name is, in fact, and we checked, John. Ooh. Now that hmm. is interesting, Andrew. Okay. Intriguing. We learned, however, that at least one US politician, indeed one aspirant to Donald Trump's previous job, has figured out how to avoid a similar entanglement. <laughs> 
we learn that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has instead inspired, somehow, a band to write a song about him. In this specific instance, we learned it is Southern Rock Institution Leonard Skinnerd, who do, of course, have form when it comes to mentioning the holders of gubernatorial office in song. We must now regretfully scratch off this instance of Leonard Skinner being very good and fade up with heavy heart, an instance of Leonard Skinner being really quite startlingly bad. He stands up for what he believes. So don't come down here trying to change things. We're doing all right in the sunshine state. Stay out of our business, leave our gov alone. Where's the gong? Anyway, that, we learned, was Skinner's Ode to Ron DeSantis, and a dreadful and dreary descent it is, from their slyly ambiguous skewering of Alabama Governor George Wallace, which has since been adopted as Alabama's unofficial state anthem. In fact, let's have it back, as it's an absolute belter, as indeed is pretty much all of Skinner's pre-plane crash output. But Leonard Skinner did, of course, start out in Jacksonville, so perhaps we have learned that while you can take the man out of Florida, you cannot take the Florida out of the man. Maybe a noise here suggesting a drunk shirtless dude with an eye patch wrestling an alligator in a Waffle House car park? Oh, Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Sticking with the subject of thin to the point of translucence skinned demagogues, we learned that Hungarian Prime Minister and obstinate Vladimir Putin mini-me Viktor Orban had not received the following and other criticisms by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky equably. That was Zelensky rhetorically inquiring of Orban whether he was acquainted with what was occurring in Mariupol. And this, we learned, was Orban after winning re-election this past weekend, as will now be translated with due gravitas by Monocle's anti-Semitic Foghorn's desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We overpowered the left at home, the international left all around, the Brussels bureaucrats, the Soros empire with all its money, the international mainstream media, and in the end, even the Ukrainian president. The international left, the Soros empire, the international media, the Ukrainian president, whoever could he mean, etc. <coughs> even after all that, we learned, Orban directed Hungary's foreign ministry to summon Ukraine's ambassador in Budapest for a formal down-dressing and at yelling. So we learned that even a thumping election victory is insufficient to quell Orban's whining, and we learned again of the curiously hefty overlap between belligerent nationalism and snivelling self-pity. Here in the UK, meanwhile, we learned of a piercing beam of sunshine scything through the grey clouds of a gathering economic storm. We learned, and it being roughly that time of year, we did double-check the date, that the Chancellor of the Exchequer 
has commanded Her Majesty's Treasury to ask the Royal Mint to issue an NFT. We have not learned, and not exclusively because we don't care, precisely what the NFT will be an NFT of. We have been promised details. Ah, here it is, soon. At least with magic beans, there's theoretically a chance of growing an enormous plant, the climbing of which will pit you in a battle with a rampaging giant and the possibility, in the event of victory, of spoils including a magic harp and an enchanted goose, and by golly, let's play out with a goose honking along to a harp. <coughs> Anyone expecting a Joanna Newsom joke at that point should just be ashamed of themselves. Still better than that Skinnered track, though. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Mullet. Andrew and the team, a huge thanks for that. And uh, thanks also to Stephen DL. You're in pieces after that, aren't you? It's very difficult to keep a straight face listening to him, particularly when you know Andrew Muller. If there's anyone out there who doesn't know, mm. he really is. He's not only brilliantly clever, but he is one of the funniest people I know with the sharpest wit. Indeed, but very quiet when not on the radio. <laughs> um, Stephen DL, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. My thanks also to Guy Delorney for his update on the Balkans. And thank you to you for listening as well. That's all we have time for today's edition of Monocle on Saturday. Saturday. My thanks to Nora Hole as well for looking after today's programme. Monocle on Saturday returns next week from London, but do stay tuned for lots of great content across the weekend, and I'll be back tomorrow as well behind the microphone. So for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening, and have a great Saturday. Yes.